We'll be finishing up that chapter this morning. Would like to make, a, as you turn there, a small announcement about uh, what to expect uh, with the way that things are in this world and a lot of questions that a lot of people have and a lot of things that we as Christians need to learn to think rightly about and think biblically about um, and seeing as we are in election season uh, next Sunday uh, we'll be talking about a biblical understanding of government so not so much uh, are you going to be a Republican or a Democrat you know we, we're not Christianity is not a political entity, uh, but Christianity does our, our biblical uh, understanding of what God wants for us and from us, it does inform all areas of our life. And for a long time, uh, we've had this idea, I think, uh, even here in the Bible Belt, that well, we separate church and government, right? Well, it's church and state, there's a separation between those things, and the pastor should never talk about politics. Well, and I think that's why we've ended up in a place where we have a lot of unbiblical ways of thinking about uh, political involvement and politics in general. So next week, uh, perhaps maybe the week after that, probably not, but at least next week, we're going to be talking about that, dealing with those matters so that we can learn to think uh, in a biblically informed way about how to approach those things, okay? So be looking out for that. But for today, we're going to be finishing up John chapter 4. Uh, it's the final section of, of this chapter. We're joining our Lord as He travels from Judea back to Galilee. All of chapter 4 up to this point has been focused on the two days that Jesus spent in Samaria. As you remember, He, was travel he set out traveling from Judea to Galilee and he made a sort of evangelistic pit stop. Our Lord is not like us, huh? When, when you and I make a pit stop on a road trip, it's for beef jerky and Skittles, or maybe an all-sups burrito. But when Jesus makes a pit stop, he saves a whole town. And that's what we saw in his time in the little town of Sychar in Samaria, it began with the salvation of the immoral Samaritan woman, the sexually immoral Samaritan woman, the adulteress that he met at the well, and he revealed his identity to her. And in her excitement, in her newly found salvation, she runs and tells the whole town, and salvation came to the town of Sychar. But in our text today, we're going to follow our Lord north from Samaria into Galilee, and as he arrives, we're going to see that John draws out that there are two parallel problems in Jesus' interactions in our text before us today. There's a sick, dying child who needs healing, and there is a weak, shallow belief in the people. And this shouldn't come really as a surprise to us that part of John's focus here is to call our attention to shallow belief. Or even that there are two parallel problems being presented in the text. 
We've seen a few times already that John seems to write at two different levels. He, he presents the material facts as they happened, and then he also points to a spiritual reality behind the details of different interactions. And he's going to do that once again today, and we're going to continue to see that until we finish this gospel. The spiritual realities are really the point that John is pointing us to. We saw that with the interaction with the Samaritan woman, didn't we? She came out there. The material facts were that she went out to a well to get water. Jesus was thirsty. She was thirsty. Those were the material facts as they happened. But the spiritual realities were that she was spiritually thirsty and that the only thing that can quench this spiritual thirst is a drink from the living water that Jesus offered her. So in today's text, we're going to see that sort of thing continue. He presents the material details surrounding the second sign that Jesus performs, and it involves a sick child and a father who seeks the child's healing. But we also see the spiritual reality of of weak and shallow faith. As you all know by now, John's focus in this gospel is so that you may believe. But do you remember what he said that he's going to use to lead the reader to belief. It's John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. He did many other signs, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So John is not interested in detailing every one of Jesus's Signs. Instead, he writes about the signs that most vividly point to the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you will believe and have eternal life. In other words, his focus is not so much historical to just capture all that Jesus did, but instead he wants to draw out important things from Jesus' ministry and use those as an apologetic to prove that Jesus is the Christ, but also an evangelistic tool to lead us to belief in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He only includes seven signs in 21 chapters. Now, so that you get a sense of how significant that is, Matthew chapter 8 has seven miracles just in one chapter. And so, obviously, there is a different idea that John has, a different purpose in his gospel. It's not that John views those miracles as unimportant, but John wants us to be very strategic in his inclusion of these signs. He is wanting us to see that Jesus is the Christ. So, he's more than than the sum total of his signs. Jesus is more than just a way maker, miracle worker. He is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. So as we turn to our text, this section here is going to serve as a reminder of what we learned at the end of chapter 2, that we must not put our faith in signs and wonders, but in Jesus Christ. We begin by looking at verse 43. You can remain seated. We'll read verses 43 through 46 and then we'll pray. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. We'll stop there. Father, we ask for your help this morning. Lord, without your Spirit, all that we are capable of mustering up is weak, shallow faith in signs and wonders and wonderful things that you do. So we ask that by your Spirit that you would cause us to believe truly. And if we already believe, Lord, that our faith would be strengthened yet again as we look afresh at the power and the majesty of Christ in the written word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we said, Jesus is now leaving Samaria, continuing his journey from Judea to Galilee. And while in Samaria, Jesus had this incredible ministerial success. He wasn't hated. He was loved. He wasn't dishonored. He was honored. People believed in him in Sychar, a place that was not, it wasn't Israel. It wasn't the Jewish people that he was with. It wasn't his own people. It was heretical people, half-breeds. And they believed in Jesus. They loved him there. He spent two days in that place. So it's most interesting then that John gives us this purpose statement in verse 44. If you recall, we were told at the beginning of chapter 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. You remember that. And we we understand why that is in hindsight, but now we're told that Jesus departed for Galilee from Samaria for or because Jesus himself had testified that the prophet has no honor in his own hometown. We can understand Jesus having to go through Samaria as he had a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman and even with the whole town to bring them to salvation. But now he's leaving that wildly successful ministry success to go somewhere where he's not honored. How does that make sense? That's what the text is telling us. After the two days, he left because Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, here it gets a little tricky with the various translations that we have in this room. Certain versions of the, new, the NIV at verse 44, they don't have the word for. They just say it's now. That's a very important missing word because it leaves out the whole purpose of Jesus leaving. But if you have the NASB, or the New King James, verse 44 ends with saying that the prophet has no honor in his own country. That's a little bit different than his own hometown. So two things I want to say there is the word for is incredibly important because it's giving us the purpose for which Jesus is leaving Samaria. Jesus is leaving Samaria because he's honored there. And he needs to go somewhere where he will not receive honor. That's the importance of the word for. But then he's leaving to go where he's not honored, not in his own hometown, because the text tells us he's going to Cana. We know that Jesus is not from Cana. Jesus is from Nazareth. So really the better word there is country. That a prophet is not without honor in his own country. The the idea is that he's not without honor except for amongst his own people. You know, oh, that guy? I I know him. 
we grew up together. There's no way that he's the Christ. That's kind of the idea. So that's some of the issues with the different translations that we have in the room. But what's most interesting here is, is the focus that he's getting honor in Samaria. And so he has to leave Samaria to go back to Galilee where he will not be honored. Why? Well, in chapter 3, verse 14, if you'll look back at it with me. Moses lifted up the serp- as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus needs to be lifted up as the serpent was by Moses. Jesus needs to be crucified. If he stays in Samaria, he will not be crucified because the people love him. The people honor him. The people see him as the Messiah. But back in his own country, they hate him. They will reject him. And remember Isaiah 53 prophesied that He had nothing of value. We didn't look upon him as one to be desired. He was rejected and despised among men. Well, Jesus has to be rejected. You see, he's here on a mission to reveal the Father and save sinners by dying a brutal death on a cross. So he has to go back where he is not honored so that that will happen. He wasn't here to be loved and accepted. He wasn't here to win over the Samarians, Samaritans. He went there for a purpose, indeed. He went there to reveal that He's the Savior of the world. And once that was done, it's time to pack up shop and go. Jesus has another divine appointment with a cross so that He can finish the work that the Father sent Him to do. Isn't this amazing? Jesus is nothing like us. We want to go where we're honored. We want to go where we're accepted and loved. But Jesus came to be hated so that eventually that hatred would burn hot enough that the people would shout, crucify him. That couldn't happen in Sychar because they loved him. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus came as a lamb of God. The lamb needed to be slaughtered, and he could not be slaughtered in Samaria. Even in the midst of reaping an incredible harvest of souls, of great success, Jesus is not swayed from the work that the Father sent him to do. So he leaves the place where he's honored to go be dishonored, But that brings us to another difficulty. Then why does it say in verse 45 that he came to Galilee and the the Galileans welcomed him? Well, that sure sounds like he's being honored to me. It sounds like they're welcoming him. They're receiving him. That's how the word is most often translated, is received. So what's going on here? Maybe John has his details mixed up. Or, you know what, maybe... Maybe your Bible isn't as reliable as we think and it can't be trusted, right? It's always contradicting itself. It said that it can't, he, can't, 
He's not going to be honored in his own country, and he goes back to his country, and he's honored. Or a third option, maybe we just need to keep reading. Look at verse 45. They welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. What's he talking about? What's going on here? Well, if you remember back from chapter 2, verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Yes, awesome! No, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Remember, Jerusalem was the place of worship. People from Galilee would have made the trip down to Jerusalem for Passover. There are people here in Galilee who saw the miracles that Jesus performed in Jerusalem and they believed in His name, but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them. It's putting those two things together. In other words, these are people who believe in Jesus as the miracle worker as the one who does incredible signs and wonders, but they have shallow faith. And that's why John writes that a prophet is without honor. Oh sure, they believe that he's the teacher come from God because no one can do the signs that he does if God is not with him. Oh, they believe that. So they welcome him. Hey, our miracle worker's home. Yes, Bring out all the sick people. Let's see. Let's get the popcorn ready. Let's watch some signs and wonders. That's why John writes that he's without honor. That he's not honored. They don't see what the signs are pointing to. Namely, that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's John's point, isn't it? From chapter 20. He wants to give you the signs to point to the Christ. But... Shallow faith stays with the sign and says, wow, isn't this amazing? This teaches us something very important. That Christ is not honored by shallow, superficial excitement that's brought about by the things that He does. The signs should indeed inspire awe. They're supposed to. But that awe must be in what the signs reveal about the one performing the sign. You understand? It's what is revealed here. Just as it said in chapter 2, verse 11, after Jesus turned the water into wine. Do you remember what it said about the disciples? That Jesus revealed His glory And his disciples believed in him. That was contrasted with verse 23 of chapter 2. That the people believed when they saw the signs. One people sees glory. One people sees the sign. The sign is shallow, unsaving belief. Seeing God's glory because of the sign is saving faith. In chapter 1, John wrote that they have seen his glory Glory as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth, not full of signs and wonders. The signs are meant to point to something greater. But unbelieving belief cannot look past the sign. They love it. They believe that He's a miracle worker. 
They believe that they can go to Jesus to get a miracle, but they're not believing in him. So Jesus is not honored, even though they're welcoming him. Maybe they threw a party, who knows? But that's not honoring to Jesus because they're not believing in him. Church, it's entirely possible to be more excited about what Jesus can do for you than you are excited about Jesus himself. I heard someone say recently that we shouldn't tell people about sin, that we shouldn't talk about hell, because that will not draw people in. This is someone who preaches. But if we tell people about what your life could be when united with Jesus, that's the thing that's going to draw people in, the person said. Statement's true. It will draw people in. What your life could be with Jesus, the blessings that Jesus can bring to your life, what he can do for your business. Oh, who doesn't want that Jesus? Oh, who doesn't want the Jesus that's going to help me pay my bills? Who doesn't want the Jesus that's going to give me a, a, a thriving business? Who doesn't want the Jesus who's going to give me a great family? Everyone wants that Jesus, but that's the kind of belief in Jesus that does not honor him. That's the kind of belief in Jesus that stops at the signs and the wonders and never moves on to wonder at the Son. These verses here, verses 43 to 45, they are so critical to understanding the next part of the text. Look at verse 46. Here we're going to see the parallel problems. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus has come from Jerusalem, which is in Judea, which is south, and he's come up to north to Cana, which is in Galilee. But Capernaum is also in Galilee. It's about 15 miles away. And there in Capernaum, there's this official whose son was ill. The word official in the original gives us the idea that he was working for the king. He was in the king's service. Well, who was king at that time? It was Herod. You know Herod Antipas. You know the Herod that had John the Baptist, the same John the Baptist who was the forerunner of the Messiah, who Jesus said is the greatest man born among women. That John the Baptist was beheaded by King Herod. Why? Because John the Baptist said, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Herod was not a good guy. So I wonder how he would have felt about one of his officials going to Jesus. But here he is, desperate, he's needy, I'm sure he's worried. So he asks Jesus to come to heal his son, who's near death. I think any parent could sympathize with this man. I think that we're not supposed to read this and say, look at this guy just looking for a sign and wonder. I think we're supposed to read this and say, yeah, I would do the same thing. If I knew that there was a miracle worker in the area and my son was sick, I'd probably take him. I'd probably go and try to get healing for my son. 
after all, this guy's heard the stories. Every, maybe he was even there in Jerusalem and saw the miracles himself. I think any parent could sympathize with him. Maybe he can heal my son before he dies. So he makes the journey of some 15 miles to find this miracle worker. He wouldn't know how his son was doing while he traveled. He was hoping against hope that his son would just hang on just long enough, son, please. Please, just, just don't die. Just hang on just a little bit longer. Daddy's almost there. He's almost there. I'm going to go talk to the healer. I'm going to go talk to him, and he's going to heal you. He's going to make you better. Just hang on just a little bit longer. Imagine the urgency in his heart and in his mind, the, this, the pace that he was probably traveling with. He's, I just got to make it. I got to make it before my son dies. He's near death. I got to make it. And then he comes, and there's the miracle worker. And he asks him, come heal my son. He's almost going to die. And how does the miracle worker respond? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not interested in getting in a theological debate. You know, my, my son is very ill. Maybe you didn't hear me. He's very ill. He's going to die. Could you just come, please? Could you just come and, and heal him? Just touch him. Just touch him. I know that he'll be better. The man is focused on his son's problem because he's dying of an illness. But Jesus is focused on his people's problem because they're dying of unbelief. You see, in the original, the you there in unless you see signs is plural. The NASB captures it well. It says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. You can imagine a crowd gathered around Jesus. In my mind, that's how I picture it. There's a, a crowd gathered around Jesus, and they say, yes, here's an opportunity to see another. Come watch. He's going to heal somebody else. Come, come look. This is going to be awesome. I've seen him do it. I've seen him do it before. And Jesus looks at his people who have shallow belief and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The official is addressing Jesus, and Jesus is addressing all of the people. This is further evidence of what we were saying a bit ago, in that the people might have received Jesus upon his return to Galilee, but their reception was shallow. They aren't believing in him in his person. They're believing in him as the miracle worker. Jesus is a miracle worker, make no mistake, but if a person's knowledge of Jesus never rises above the signs and the wonders, that person does not have saving faith. You can come to Jesus, you can come to Him as just the one who performs signs and wonders, but that's not saving faith. Have you ever notice that unbelieving friends and family, they always know who to turn to in the time of need? They always know. Would you pray for me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Just send, send prayers. What do you mean pray? I, talk, I tried to talk to you about the gospel and you rejected it. Well, just right now, I, just, I, really, I really need to get a job. Would you pray? Doesn't Jesus give jobs? Well, right now, I just, I just really, my, my family member is sick of cancer, you know? Can, can, you, just, can you just pray? 
when we only come to Jesus when we need him to do something, that's not saving faith. That's treating Jesus like a genie. And Jesus does not entrust himself to those who are only looking to use him. Remember at the end of chapter 2, it said that Jesus does not need anyone to bear witness about man because he himself knows what is in man. He knows who's coming to him to get a handout, who thinks that Jesus is like the welfare system, and who's actually coming to him to be saved because they believe in him. This is especially important for us in our day and age, friends, because we live in a time where there is a literal movement of signs and wonders. I remember recently we were in Houston for a conference. I don't know if it was last year or the year before. And we were driving around and there was a humongous billboard advertising a church with an arrow on it. And it said, signs and wonders. It literally said signs and wonders this way. As though you were at a circus. Come, see the wonderful healing Jesus who grants you to the ability to see signs and wonders. We have so many supposed faith healers who go around supposedly healing people on the streets. And you can watch the videos on YouTube. And hey, Have you ever had back pain? That's always what it is, is back pain. Yeah, actually, my back kind of hurts right now. Oh, okay, well, sit down. And they extend their legs. Everyone has a short, one leg shorter than the other in America. I don't know what it is. But people are lining up in droves to go to this. One of the most heartbreaking things is that you can see at these giant faith healing events is that the people who... You know, maybe they have some headache or you know, their eye can't stop twitching. They bring them on stage. But the ones who are really sick and ill, who really, they're putting all their faith in this man, they're, they're told to go pray in the corner. Names like Todd White, Benny Hinn, Bill Johnson, Kenneth Copeland. These are all men who supposedly operate in the power of signs and wonders, and they supposedly teach others to do the same. They seek to attract people to Christ in the exact way that Jesus is here rebuking the people for. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. And these men today say, you know how we can get people to come to Jesus? Signs and wonders. Only these men today don't perform actual verifiable miracles ever, much unlike our Lord, who had many eyewitnesses to his miracles, and many completely unbiased witnesses testifying of the veracity of these claims. And we're going to see one in just a moment. But for now, how does the man respond to Jesus? Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. We get a small lesson here in persistence from the official, don't we? 
He's not swayed by Jesus' remarks concerning belief. He continues to persist. He's insistent, sir, come down before my child dies. You can sense his urgency. For all that this man knows, his son has already passed away. He's traveled. It's taken some good time for him to get there. Please, come before he dies. Though Jesus has made the statement about belief, he displays his grace, doesn't he? Go, your son will live. Isn't it amazing that this official said, come with me, come heal my son? And Jesus just spoke a word. He just sent him with a word. And there's an important detail here. In the original, will live, your son will live, is in the present tense. So it's not that he will live, but that he is alive. In other words, go, your son lives. Why is that important? Because as we see in verses 51 and 52, it was at the very moment that Jesus said that, that the son was healed. He recovered the moment that Jesus said, your son lives. This teaches us two things about the power of the word of Christ. It teaches us that Jesus' word is life-giving and life-sustaining. Remember from the opening of this gospel that we're told that in Jesus was the light, and the light was the life of men. And John also wrote that there, there that all things were made through Jesus. Jesus can offer living water to the Samaritan woman because in him was life. He is the living bread in chapter 6 because in Jesus was life. Jesus can tell this man that his son lives because in him was life. And this is also true because Jesus' words are the very words of God. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 33, we're told that, that Jesus utters the words of God. Chapter 6, verse 63 tells us that his words are spirit and life. But then Hebrews 1.3 tells us exactly what we see here. That he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here Jesus demonstrates that beautifully because he upholds this man's son's life by the power of his word. He doesn't even need to go. He doesn't even need to pretend to start going that direction. He just speaks the word Modern faith healers we have today can't heal you of any actual disease, even if you sow a seed into their ministry and come to their healing events. But Jesus could speak a word, and some 15 miles away, a child miraculously is brought back from the brink of death. Think of the power in that word. This is the kind of word that only God has. It's the same kind of word that speaks into the darkness and says, let there be light. You and I do not have that kind of power. That so-called prophet or apostle on TV definitely does not have that kind of power. Only God has that power. And in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, when seen on this earth, he was God incarnate. Secondly, we also see that Jesus' word is trustworthy. You can trust what he says. Think of the faith 
it took for this man to travel all this way in desperation. His son is near death. And Jesus doesn't even come back with him. He sends him with a word. You can't even like pray over a towel and let me take the towel. You can't get your blazer and swing it at me. You just send me with a word. It took a lot of faith, didn't it? It took saving faith because Jesus' word is trustworthy. The man didn't see the sign and he didn't need to. He didn't need to see the miracle. He heard the word of Jesus and that was enough. He believed not in the sign, but in Jesus himself. Do you understand the difference? This man, I believe, is the opposite of what verses 43 through 45 are telling us. He didn't need to see the sign to believe. He believed on account of Jesus' word. We're told by the servants that the moment that Jesus spoke, he was healed. And then John writes again that he believed. I would say that this man believes in Jesus initially, and then his faith grew upon hearing of the answered request. Why do I say that? Because if the text indicates to us that the man is traveling back home and his servants come out to meet him. He hasn't even seen his son yet. And the servants are telling him, hey, your son is better. He's, he's alive. What, what happened? What time did that happen? It was at the seventh hour. And then the man remembered Jesus' word. He remembered what Jesus had spoken. And that strengthened his faith. That is completely different than what we saw back in chapter 2, 23 that we referenced. Where John writes that many believed in Jerusalem. Because remember, they believed in his name when they saw the signs. Do you see the difference? This man believes the word that Jesus spoke, and he had not yet even seen the sign. But those other people, they believed only after they had seen the sign. Theirs was a shallow faith, and his was a saving faith. But Notice another detail here in our text. That this man is not recorded as having believed after witnessing the miracle, but on his way back home, they meet him, they share the good news with him, and then not only was he saved, but his whole household was saved. Do you see the power of the salvation of Christ, the power of his word? Do you remember what the Samaritans said? It was after Jesus' teaching, they believed his word. That's when they were saved, the whole town. And now this man, not only is his son healed, but his whole family is saved, all because of the power of the word of Jesus. He hasn't even made it home yet. This is a far cry from the Galileans who were warmly receiving Jesus, but their hearts were far from him. So what do we take from this? The purpose of this story is directly linked to John's purpose statement that we read in the introduction. That he's including this sign so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so that you will have life by believing. This story shows us that it's entirely possible 
To have a shallow, superficial belief in Jesus where you know him as nothing more than waymaker, miracle worker. Is he the waymaker? Yes, absolutely. Is he a miracle worker? Absolutely. But he's so much more than that. And if all that we ever know of him is the one, he's the one who can answer a prayer and cause a miracle, that's not saving faith. We have to know him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have to know him as the light of the world, that he's the one who gives living water, that he's the living bread come down from heaven, that he's the resurrection and the life, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that he's the one and only son of the one true and living God. In other words, we need to come to Jesus knowing him and believing in him as he has revealed himself to be. Not just as the miracle worker. If you know him as nothing more than that, if you only come to him when you have a need, my friend, that is not saving faith. Jesus is not the Lord of your life when you only pray to him when you need something. When you never talk to Jesus outside of, oh, I need this, I need that. I really need to make ends meet. I really need to pay this bill. I really need this situation at work to work out. I really need this. I really need that. If that's the only relationship that we have with Jesus, we do not have saving faith. Stories like this are in the scriptures for us to examine our own heart and say, is that me? Is that me? Is that the kind of faith that I have in Jesus? Do I only come to him when I'm in need? Or is he actually the Lord of my life? Does he actually dictate my coming and going? Does he actually dictate what I do daily? Or do I only love him and trust him insofar as much as he gives me what I want? Friends, we have examples of plenty in Scripture that our prayers are not always answered the way that we want them to be. I can't tell you how many stories there are of people who say they are not Christian anymore. And do you know why? I prayed really hard for God to save my mom from cancer. I prayed really hard for God to do this. I prayed really hard for God to do that. And he didn't answer my prayer. So I can't believe in that God stuff. If that's the extent of how we come to Jesus, we're not coming to him. We're coming to the one who can give us something. But if we come to Jesus for who he is, saying, you answer my prayer however you want, just save me. Just give me a drink of living water. Just let me live. Let me be with you. If we come to Jesus that way, that is saving faith. So which one do you have this morning? The other question before us is, the other thing that this does for us is it can strengthen our faith. Because we can be reminded that this Jesus is powerful. Yeah, he's way more than a miracle worker. He's way more than that. But he's also a miracle worker. He also answers prayers. 
And I, know, I can know that if I come to Him in faith, believing in Him, that He will answer my prayer. Sure, it may not always turn out the way I want it to. But First John tells us that if we are His children, we can know that He hears us. So I pray, whichever it is, that saving faith would be in all of our hearts and that it would be strengthened. This morning we're going to turn our attention here to the Lord's table.